one thing that I'm really, I guess, concerned about in the biohacking community, continuous glucose monitors are part of this, sleep monitors are part of this, is this kind of pathologization of things that should bring us joy. You know, there's interesting data. This. As soon as you quantify something, you start to lose the joy in it. You start to objectify it, and it's no longer a thing that can bring you joy in the same way. All right, welcome back, or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm Michael Gervais, and by trade and training, I am a sport and performance psychologist. I love what I get to do, and I am fortunate to work with some of the most extraordinary thinkers and doers across the planet. And the whole idea behind this podcast, behind these conversations, is to pull back the curtain, to explore how these extraordinaries have committed to mastering both their craft and their minds. And our minds, it's one of the great assets that we have in life. It's amazing. We are capable of so much. And if you want to learn more about how you can optimize the way you work with your mind, this is just a quick little reminder here to check out our online psychological training course where we have pulled together the best practices to meet that unique intersection of high performance psychology and the psychology of well being. So we walk through 16 essential principles and skills for you to develop the mind that works for you. What does that mean? It's this ability for you to be at home with yourself wherever you are and to be working towards your upper capabilities. And when you end up doing that, you end up bringing other people along with you. It's an amazing thing. It's this flywheel effect when you're able to be grounded, fully present, and then able to work towards your upper capability. It's this unbelievable thing that takes place in your environment. So we'll share with you the same way that we share best practices with world-class athletes. And you can find all of this at findingmastery.net forward slash course. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their Hydrate or Die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S naturals, dot com slash finding mastery with a code finding mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. 
The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, this week's conversation is with Dr. Tommy Wood, a UK-trained MD with a PhD in physiology and neuroscience. He received his undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge before attending medical school at the University of Oxford. After working as a junior doctor in central London, he moved to Norway for his PhD work and then to the University of Washington as a postdoc, where he's now an assistant professor of pediatrics. So what I just said is worth noting. He attended two of the most dynamic universities across the planet. He's got a deep understanding of biochemistry, physiology, and neuroscience, and he's teaching as a professor in the pediatrics. It's pretty cool. I mean, so that's a little bit of an indicator of where we went. Tommy is one of those rare individuals that can really go deep into a subject, and then he also has the ability to go horizontal across many. And so there is a polymath nature to that ability. His work and his research interests include physiological and metabolic responses to brain injury and how that impacts brain health across lifespan, as well as developing easily accessible methods so that you can track health and performance and longevity in both elite performers and athletes, as well as the general population. This conversation is about first principles to work from for health over time. And obviously we're going to dive deeply into optimizing and enhancing brain functioning. And with that, let's jump right into this week's conversation with Dr. Tommy Wood. Tommy, how are you? I'm really good. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Oh yeah. I've been looking forward to this. We have had a lot of people on to talk about longevity and brain health and human optimization. And I'm really excited to talk to you about, you know, some intriguing angles on longevity that go beyond eat well, sleep, meditate, which are all important processes. But, you know, right off the bat, I came across a study um, that you've cited that, you know, it says basically that when you retire, people that retire die early. Uh (laughs) Can we just start there? Because this community, our community are people that are switched on getting after it and considering the good life, whether it's, you know, during the work phase or um, post-retirement. So can we just start with that idea? Sure. Obviously, this is a very difficult thing to study 
Right? You can't randomize people to retire earlier or later and see who dies sooner. So those particular studies that look at that, obviously, we just have to look at a population of people and try and understand what, what happens. Um, there are a couple of studies that have done this. And they basically show that those who retire seven to 10 years earlier, so early retirement versus normal retirement, say, those who retire earlier die sooner. Um, and that's after you adjust for a whole host of things that might contribute to this. So, so maybe you retired for medical reasons, and then obviously that health condition may contribute to you dying sooner, right? So adjusting for things like that. And the signal that kind of comes out of that, and I think it really sort of brings together threads from multiple areas of uh, both neuroscience and sort of you know, general biology and physiology of uh, longevity or health span, is that if, you know, it, essentially the, the simple concept is use it or lose it. Um, and we know that tissues in the body um, respond to stresses or, you know, b demands by strengthening you know, improving their function, improving their regenerative capacity. Um, and if we don't use them, then they will atrophy. Um, and muscle mass is one that people may be familiar with, right? If you don't use your muscles, they get smaller, they get weaker. They are energetically expensive. So if you're not, if you don't need them, your body won't keep them around. Um, and we could probably think about that for pretty much any tissue in the body, um, and including the brain, that's the one that I'm the most interested in, but I'm also very interested in muscle tissue because those things are, are intimately connected. And so if we're not using our brains, if we're not using our bodies, then they will start to atrophy. They won't, they won't um, repair as they would otherwise. And, you know, in sort of a bigger picture, eventually that will lead to earlier loss of function and eventually death. And when you say use your brain, let's be, it's easy to think about using your body, right? Yeah. We're talking about straining. We're talking about recovery. We're talking about range of motion. We're talking about stressing your system, your, your um, physical system so that you build the right type of stimulus and repair to, for it to maintain this, um, a slower decline. Mm -hmm. I think that that's fair to say. Yeah. So how do you do, because there was, I think it was probably like a decade ago maybe more, yeah, it was about a decade ago, where there was a big buzz on brain training and um, you know, technology to help support a sharp memory, if you will. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not specifically asking about that, but in general first, how do you, how do you strain and stress and use your brain um, according to some best practices? It's a great question. And I like the answer because depending on who you are and the things that you enjoy and prefer, you have lots of different options, essentially. In order to bring context to it, when I think about the stresses that are beneficial for the brain, I like to go all the way back to when you're developing your brain in the first place, which is convenient because I'm a neonatal neuroscientist. That's what I do for the majority of my day job. And think about what an infant does as their brain is developing and they are starting to learn about the world, um, they spend a huge amount of time learning how to coordinate very fine and gross movements of this meat sack that carries them around, right? And it's incredibly difficult to learn those processes. Uh, similarly, the process of learning language, right? Um, learning to speak 
Um, there's benefits uh, we could talk about later from learning multiple languages at the same time. But just the, just the act of learning a language, incredibly complex. Um, learning social interaction, again, something that's very difficult and needs time and effort and practice. Those three things sort of make up the majority of what your brain gets as inputs as it's developing. And those are the same inputs that can improve, strengthen um, the brain, the connections, you know, function essentially throughout the entire lifespan. So like I mentioned earlier, uh, those who are bilingual have uh, better connections, better cognitive reserve late into life. Um, those who uh, do some kind of skill-based movement uh, particularly movement that challenges coordination seems to be particularly beneficial for preventing cognitive decline. So when they've done meta-analyses looking at all the studies of exercise interventions for preventing cognitive decline, dementia, those that have a balance component seem to be the most protective. Um, and it's probably because when you're challenging your orientation in physical space, it's a much stronger stimulus to the brain to try and orient itself uh, and protect itself. It's, it's sort of like a, almost like an existential threat if you're not, you know, fully oriented in, in space. So coordinative and balanced movements, they have a, a you know, a particular benefit. Um, and music is another one. Uh, there are multiple studies showing that musicians um, have um, uh, younger looking brains compared to those who aren't musicians. And they also have these tighter connections throughout the brain later into life. And what's interesting is that no matter where you are on this trajectory of developing or trying to keep a brain, um, difficult things as you learn them are the important stimulus. So if you look at amateur musicians versus professional musicians, amateur musicians have more of a benefit from the music than professionals because it's harder for them to do. They're less good at it. Um, and this could be the same for language. It could be the same for going out making new friends, new social connections. It could be new movement strategies. Um, it can be teaching others. Uh, that seems to provide, you know, teachers seem to have um, some degree of benefit as well. So any of these things, these challenges that you might use to develop your brain as an infant are the same things you can then adapt and apply as an adult. Okay, so if we play it back, we're talking about language, yep. music, balance, mm -hmm. and teaching. And the... the what's underneath the surface is making sure that you're right up against that learning edge yes. where it's, um, it's difficult to do the thing for an extended period of time. It challenges, you know, more resources, internal resources to be able to do it. Does that, yeah. does that sound right so far? Yeah, exactly. It, ha it has to be challenging something, you know, and everybody, you know, or people often ask for some kind of procedure protocol, you know, if you're right up against, some you know learning barrier where you're trying to get better at a skill you know 10 15 20 minutes of that sort of frustrated application seems to be where people should spend time beyond that it probably becomes overly stressful that it's maybe not worth doing at that moment in time and then returning to it but it, it's that level of difficulty where you're challenging yourself and it's almost you know there's an aspect of frustration to it and maybe failure to then learn and adapt as part of it and where do you get the 15 to 20 minutes from? And uh, and again, I just want to re, not reframe, but I want to say 15 to 20 minutes of deep, you're calling it frustrating, but deep practice where you're right at the learning edge. And with that comes some frustration. But where do you get the 15 to 20? Is that, I haven't seen it or read it, but I'm 
I'm yeah, super it's, intrigued. It, yeah, it's 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 an application of, I guess, multiple areas of neuroscience where that's probably the period of time where you can apply concentrated effort to any given thing. You know, it, it under underlies the timing of, say, the Pomodoro technique for you know applied um, focus. So it's it just seems to be a period of time that people seem to be able to commit to and get some benefit from. You know, without you know, either under or overplaying it. And of course, there's some individual variation, but it sort of as like an average, it okay. seems to fall somewhere in that time period. And can you just expand on the Pomodoro technique? So uh, the Pomodoro technique being one way to apply focused periods of time uh, to get some productivity done. So there are timers that you can use this, but it's usually uh, 20 minutes, say, of focused application, and then a five minute break. And both are um, necessary. So even if at the end of 20 minutes, you're like, I feel good, you know, I'm going to keep going, you take you stop, you do your defined break, and then you get back into it. Um, and there are, there are multiple reasons why this is potentially beneficial. Um, task switching in smaller periods of time seems to be more cognitive, cog cognitively demanding, but for less overall benefit. So when you're like checking your email and then doing something else for a couple of minutes, then something else, it takes a lot of cognitive demand, but you get less overall productivity. So you feel busy, but the end output is probably more physiologically stressful and less overall productivity. So these small focused uh, periods of time seem to result in better overall work on average. So what are you doing for some of these? Obviously you're in a learning mode, you're a student you know, of, of neuroscience neonatal neuroscience to be particular, but I know you're a learner, you're a great learner. I'm, I'm imagining you're applying these, but how are you applying um, the balance part or the physical movement part? Or what are you, are you doing anything for language or music or anything yeah. else that you might be doing? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And when I talk about these things and then think about, well, how do I apply this myself? Because I do want to you know, walk the talk. So uh, two main areas, so in the movement area, um, in my movement practice, I am an amateur strongman competitor. Um, and so that involves a lot of skill-based movements. It's sort of like difficult to lift heavy loads and that kind of thing. So that's something that I practice in the gym. But outside of that, um, I frequently, it's right underneath my feet, I have, a, I have a slack block, which is basically like a mini slack line where you can stand and balance for periods of time. And the reason why I have it under my desk is because then I don't forget to do it. It's just like right there. It's like the same thing with the chin-up bar under your, you know, under the doorway. Um, so that's somewhere where I sort of do, you know, five to 15 minutes of sort of balance practice per day. Sort of just as part of, you know, if, if I'm on a Zoom call or a meeting, I'll, I'll do that. Wait, 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 wait. You've got a, um, you've got a wire you know, like a standing wire that underneath your desk that you can just stand on while you're taking a meeting? It's not a wire. It's a, it's a block with, with foam underneath. Oh, God. Okay. So it I, gives you the I, same... I was imagining a slack, a slack line. No. You know? it, no, no, no. It's called, a it's called a slack block. So it's kind of like a pseudo slack line for one, just, just for one foot. Literally, this is like, what's the minimum effective thing that I can do that I know I'll improve in over time? This is it. But there are multiple different options. Anything that challenges your balance, if it's just standing on one foot while you're brushing your teeth, you know, that's going to give you some stimulus. None of, you know, there, you know, if I had a proper slack line in the backyard and I spent 30 minutes of focused slack line work every day, that would probably be the best possible stimulus. But, you know, trying to just trying to fit these things in throughout the day. 
Are you more interested in health span? Are you more interested in longevity? Are you more interested in brain health? Like if you started to narrow in just a little bit, what is the thing you're most interested in? I think I would have to pick, if I had to pick one, it would be health span, um, which is essentially just the fundamental idea of wanting, it's like life in your years rather than years in your life, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, live long, drop dead kind of thing. And so I have no great interest or necessarily belief that myself or humans in general can live to be 120, 150, 180 years old. You do not. Um, I do not. But um, I have a number of family members who lived well into their 90s with good quality of life. And that sounds pretty good. And so I'd like to do everything that I can in order to achieve that if possible. So what are you referencing that idea, that kind of um, first position, if you will, about lifespan, um, health span and lifespan here, or longevity, we're talking about longer extending years, because there are so many quote unquote, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time saying this out loud, there's so many biohackers that are convinced that they are going to live to be 150, because the technology is better, nutrition's better, practices are better, like we know more, fill in the blanks. And what are you looking at that says, no, I don't think that's going to happen in our lifetime. And I'm not sure it's going to happen in any lifetime. So when you look at, um, I guess, the science that underpins these projections, right now, there is no agreement as to what the limit of human lifespan is. If you look at the, the age that is relatively frequently reached, but not that frequently, it's maybe 110 ish to 120 years old that seems to be like the common limit of, of human lifespan as as we currently stand when you apply statistical models to these data some people will say oh that's a pretty hard limit that's probably going to be our best lot other people will apply different statistical models to the same data essentially and say oh there's no physical you know there's no you know d definite limit limit to human lifespan um and so while that is up in the air i feel like it's probably not a particularly useful strategy to say oh yes i'm going to live to 150 years old because right now we have no evidence that that's even possible it may well be possible in the future we recently just lost the oldest person that's ever lived mm -hmm. um Japanese woman that lived to be about 122 years old. Um, I think her name was Jean. Is, are you familiar with her, um, her story? I did. I, I'm not familiar with the story, but I remember just seeing the headline of that. Yeah. Yeah. Jean or Jeannie. I, I, and I'm not sure I've only read it. My question is like, okay, so 122. She's the half percenter, the, the, the fraction of a percenter that's lived that long. It would make sense, though, as we get better and smarter and and um, have better in resources, that we could move that 122 to 132, to 142. It does make some sense, but that that might take 200 years to do so, or 400 years to do so. Is is that more of your position that people are going to live to be older, but it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime? Are you saying no? I think it's going to stay at 120s in the 120s. Oh no, I, I am certain that we will slowly eke that number out as. Mm you know, okay. genetics and healthcare and technology improve. Um, 
So all the models that we have currently, you know, any statistical model is only based on historical data, right? So it's impossible to project into the future. So yes, I'm sure that that number will continue to slowly increase. But I think it's very unlikely that on a large population level, we are going to frequently, you know, see the average lifespan be over 100 years old. Most of that is because of health inequities and societal issues rather than because we cannot do it. Um, but I'm, for myself, I'm not convinced that in the next 60 years, we are going to dramatically extend human lifespan. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with their co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo, Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula it just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist. And it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. 
how, are you familiar with um, the different regions or countries in the world and their lifespans? Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. So you and I are both in the United States at this point. I don't think you were born here, though, were you? Not with that accent. Uh, actually, I was, despite Come the on. accent. I did have. I was born in Emerson, Illinois. And then how long did you spend in Europe? Uh, I was there from when I was five until I was 30. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, so all that being said is the United States, we are not in the top 10% of health span, lifespan um, countries. So like, I think we're 85 out of 200 and something. It's, it's yeah. like just barely kind of middle of the pack. And it's probably due to the stress quote unquote, you know, and I know that's a placeholder for a lot of words, but it's probably due to high stress. And you can imagine the ones that um, for most com most countries where people don't live as long, you know, because like Somalia maybe, or some really high stress environments. But can you just talk maybe a little bit about two parts? What do you think the environmental, we're using this as a springboard to the environmental conditions that promote a good life? And then the second is I want to double click underneath and talk about um, what is what is actually happening to our body from both a brain and a body perspective um, as we get older. You know, what does the degradation look like? So let's just start with the environmental conditions first. A lot of people will have heard of the blue zones, I'm sure. Um, so regions in Greece, Sardinia, Okinawa and Japan um a small part of the coast of costa rica uh seventh day adventists in california uh groups where they have the highest proportion of centenarians and super centenarians so people so people live to be 100 or 110 years old actually following right behind that uh, are places like hong kong um iceland which is where half of my family are from which are which are pretty close um it, you know they don't have that sort of blue zone moniker but in terms of Overall average lifespan, you know, they're, they're pretty close to, you know, into the high 80s uh, or mid to high 80s. And so people have sort of fetishized the blue zones a little bit um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, really focused in particularly on diet. Everybody wants to talk about diet. Um, but, you know, so, so dietary components, certainly useful, nutritious, um, whole foods, local, seasonal all that kind of stuff. And I think that applies in the majority of, of regions of the world. But in Iceland, that's uh, fish, not many starch carbohydrates, um, you know, whatever, deer, meat, um, other things. Obviously, they have a very animal uh, animal rich diet. Um, similarly in Hong Kong, actually. And so that's one aspect, I think, sort of overall nutrient density, food quality um, will, plays a big role then there's a, a huge, huge social component. So, you know, all of the areas of the blue zones, um, they have meals together, they have some kind of meditative or religious or community practice um, where, you know, they spend time in the moment, either together or alone or both. Um, and then that, that seems to be consistent across a lot of communities that have longevity. Um, then, you know, this opportunity for rest and relaxation so a strong circadian rhythm being able to actually sleep properly rest and recover properly uh, a frequent movement practice I mean, and that being part of the environment and again that's 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 common across all those um regions um and so that 
probably encompasses most of it. So being able to have some kind of, uh, well, I guess another thing that's important is be it meaning or purpose, you have some function in society. And, you know, that can be your job uh, or it could be could be something else. Um, and then that continues for your entire life, right? In a lot of those communities, whatever it is, your function, you know, maybe it changes, but you always have one. You're not just like parked in a nursing home and left there. Um, so you're always a part of the community and you have some meaning or purpose through your work or otherwise. Um, and then the opportunity to rest and recover, interact socially, move frequently. Um, and any environment that fosters those things, I think provides the environment for a long and healthy human life. Now, let's just swing over to the brain really quickly, which is, I know, straight down your lane here. So what happens to the declining brain? What are we most concerned about? When you think about cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, um, like most people like focus really hard in on the pathology, the development of aggregated pathological proteins in the brain. You might have heard of amyloid beta. Now people are focusing more on tau. And this does happen. Hold on. Right? Will you explain both of those? Those are yeah. really important. Yeah, those yeah, are good. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, amyloid um, is or comes from a precursor, amyloid precursor protein. And as with many proteins in the body, it can be chopped up in different ways. Um, and when the when essentially the brain is stressed, that's that's kind of my go-to term, some kind of neurological stress. And it could be inflammatory, it could be toxic, like a heavy metal exposure, um, you know, it could be an infection, uh, it could be persistently high blood glucose levels. You know, these things, this um, protein can accumulate. And on the other side, you can normally clear it to a certain extent, and sleep is really critical for that. And so you wanted to put on the glucose thread more. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. So now the I, I don't really want to get too much into amyloid for one very specific reason, which is that mm -hmm. the amount of amyloid in your brain doesn't correlate to your symptoms or your decline. We know they're associated, but really poorly. Uh, and that's the same in animal models as well as in humans. However, it's kind of um, an epiphenomenon of neuro neuronal stress in my mind. It's, it's something that happens alongside as neurons are stressed over time. Okay. And we do know that once you get enough, then the aggregation or buildup of amyloid can become damaging in its own right. So eventually you get to this feed forward cycle, but that's not where most people end up. As part of this kind of buildup of proteins in the brain over time, you also see uh, hyperphosphorylated tau, which is another protein that builds up inside the neurons themselves. And essentially, it can get to a point where this the, um, these the protein sort of clumps together and can actually like damage the cell itself because it's built up so much in, inside. And that's sort of like the next thing that we're looking at in um, in Alzheimer's disease. And these these things sort of happen on a, on a, on a cascade. We think you know, it's sort of like happen over time. One triggers the next. Um, However, uh, like I said, I'm not entirely convinced that this is the focus that we should take. Um, and it comes back to, I guess, some of the things that we talked about earlier. So we know that some of these activities are protective and maybe protective even in the context of having all those proteins build up, right? Because those, those things aren't directly correlated. Um, 
And we also, if we look at animal models, and this is where I'm going, if you, if you want to create cognitive decline, there are essentially three ways to do it. One is to decrease supply of necessary nutrients to the brain. You can slow flow from the carotid arteries, less blood, less oxygen is getting to the brain. So you decrease, um, you decrease supply. Uh, you can also damage the actual process of producing energy. So um, one thing you see in Alzheimer's disease is a decrease in cytochrome C oxidase, which is one of the key proteins in the electron transport chain in mitochondria. And you can actually recreate this with a very small dose of cyanide, which essentially attacks that process. So you can create this um, sort of phenotype of cognitive decline by gently poisoning your mitochondria just a little bit. Um, and there are multiple things that could potentially do this. And we see um, this process happening again in infections, inflammation, maybe in response to, to hyperglycemia, some of these other things. So that's another one. You can decrease supply. You can decrease, like, just like the metabolic pro process, or you can decrease demand on the other side. You just ask for less of the brain, and it will produce less. And there, there are ways that we can do that in animal models, and it's you, it's we like humans animals benefit from enrichment in the environment, interaction with things, cognitive stimulation. And that can be other animals. It could be toys and things to play with. And in any model of injury, providing environmental stimulation, environmental enrichment, be that with other animals or with you know toys, interaction in the environment, it's neuroprotective. The brain will recover better. Equally, if you remove those things from the environment, the brain will decline faster. So this is, goes back to our mm. retiring early. We've removed the stimulus. Mm. So for the declining brain, or to prevent the brain from declining, the three things we know we need are good vascular supply of stuff to get up to the brain. So you don't want your carotid arteries or you know cerebral arteries to become you know atherosclerosed, you know sort of clogged. Um, for want of a better word, we want to maintain good mitochondrial function. And so that's providing adequate nutrients, also maybe avoiding certain toxins. So there's interest in uh, pollutants in the water, air pollution, you know, other things that may that may contribute to this. Heavy metals. Heavy metals, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, on the other side, you need to maintain demand. So those three things, I think, are, you know, and for different people, different combinations of those will be important. But But that's kind of the framework that I would use uh, in the context of a brain that you want to keep functioning for as long as possible. So on the supply side, um, we're talking about nutrition. We're talking about exercise mm -hmm. on the supply side. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's not so complicated to think about we're increasing oxygenation across the system, the ecosystem, so that our brain is being fed properly, right? From good nutrients, but good oxygen um, as well. So we need our heart to be strong. We need to stress the system in a more challenging way, call it acute stress rather than a chronic stress yeah. to be able to have that supply. Okay. And we should probably, um, before I go on the other two quickly, that let's go back to the um, uh, blood sugar levels. You know, let, let's talk about that for a minute because I think that, I think we're confused about, I, I don't think anyone's really confused about what good nutrition is, apple and an apple pie. We know the apple is the right choice for the most part. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, we have to work pretty hard to say the apple pie is the right choice. But so most people know what good nutrition, healthful nutrition is. But I don't think most people really understand the damage that takes place when our glucose system is out of whack. So can can you speak to that specifically from a brain perspective? There are, I mean, there are multiple ways that you can attack this. We could go into like deep mechanism. Um, but one of the most compelling things for, for me in this arena, um, well, first, if you think about Alzheimer's disease, one of the, one of the, one thing that's pathognomonic, it is like a, a hallmark of a disease is that if you inject a glucose tracer, less will be taken up into the brain. Uh, the brain is less metabolically active from a glucose utilization perspective. I don't uh, you understand. Get, uh, yeah, I'm, so, I'm lost here. Yeah. So you can do something called a, a PET scan, yep. um, which basically is a, it's a measure of different, you can, depending on the process you're testing, you give some kind of molecule that you're interested in, in the process of, and you tag it, usually with some kind of radioactive tag, and then you can see where it goes in the body. We use it to look at different types of cancer. We can use use it to look at the activity of the brain um, in Alzheimer's disease. Okay, great. And, great. and one thing you see is less uptake of glucose into the brain in somebody with age-related cognitive decline, specifically in areas that seem to be affected. Um, and it's thought that there's been some kind of generation of insulin resistance in the brain where basically the the brain is no longer listening to the signal of the the insulin signaling of glucose glucose isn't getting to the brain the brain's kind of turned down that signal one of the potential reasons for that and there are multiple is a continuous over supply of signal right we know of everything you know everything that happens in the body there's some kind of feedback loop so if you have some kind of glucose signal um and it's consistently high, so your glucose is always high, you might turn down the volume a little bit to try and protect your cells. And that's essentially what the, the process of insulin resistance is. Those cells are trying to protect themselves from that signal. So that seems to be part of this process. Um, and when you look at brains of... So this, is, the, this study was done in, in people with diabetes. But when you look in brains of people with diabetes, those who have the highest fasting blood sugar level have the oldest looking brains. Um, and there, there's this nice um, algorithm uh, called the brain age algorithm, um, easy to remember. It's basically an MRI scan that uses um, a machine learning model to guess essentially how old your brain is. So people may have heard of various measures of biological age, chronological age. This is the same thing, but using a brain scan. And within those who were in this one study, they applied this to those with diabetes. And one of the strongest signals was the difference between those who had lower and higher blood sugar on how much older the brain looked. Hmm. So there are multiple reasons why persistently high blood sugar may cause problems, but you can also just, you can see it. Um, and we know that the faster your brain ages, the worse your decline in cognitive function. Wasn't the same study, but a different study using the same procedures. So some people genetically have a challenge with what we're talking about. Most people have earned this problem. They've <laughs> eaten themselves or sat themselves into this problem. Is that fair? Yeah. And I would even say um, when it comes to genetics of, say, type 2 diabetes, because that's kind mm -hmm. of, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about or metabolic syndrome, which is sort of 
one of the later stages of insulin resistance or you know persistent high blood sugar those two and they often come together um even those at genetic risk requires an environmental setting that promotes that um you know if you go to uh the bolivian semenae which is a hunter-gatherer tribe that's been studied for multiple different regions because it's you know still relatively close to its original sort of hunter-gatherer type um lifestyle they have a genetic predisposition to diabetes were they to be put in the modern american environment but they have a zero percent prevalence of diabetes in their home environment um and so people like to talk about genetic risk but i'm a i'm a big fan of saying there are modifiable things that are probably more important for the vast majority of people Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. It's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. So what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up, and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush, or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that All at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. 
AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. My grandmother-in-law, my wife's mm-hmm. uh, grandmother, she's 96. She, she eats more sugar than anyone I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. She's as strong as an ox. <laughs> like, she's on it, you know? And so it's like, wow. And she's sneaking sugar from her kids, you know? Like, <laughs> they, 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 you know, it's, they, they, can't, they can't believe it. Like, they're trying to do their very best. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, and she's always had a sugar tooth, her brain is craving sugar and she is not on the decline. Certainly there's compromises at 96 from a cognitive functioning standpoint, but can you just speak to that for a moment? Cause I'm not so, I'm not okay for the 30 year old or the 40 or 50 year old listening here, 60, 70, even. Yeah. The main message here is like, get your, get your glucose in order, right? From a cholesterol standpoint, from a heart standpoint, from a brain performance standpoint, from an overall you know, quality of life standpoint, get your glucose in order, put down the sugar. But I'm not so sure that's right for her. So can you talk to like, cause I, I, I do understand that, and this is straight down your lane, folks that have had concussions crave sugar. So I think that there's something here that I can't quite stitch together and I'm hoping you can. Unfortunately, or Fortunately for me, because it's interesting, unfortunately for those who would like a defined answer, one thing that we've learned, or the main thing that we've learned about blood sugar in the last five years, is that it is impossible to predict so far how one individual will respond to a certain diet or food. There, you know, maybe the original studies or so this sort of really brought this forward um, were done by the, at the Weissman Institute in Israel where they took nearly a thousand individuals, they put continuous blood glucose monitors on them, so like measuring their glucose all the time, 24 hours a day, and they fed them a whole bunch of foods. And, you know, you take two individuals and they have, they have these nice graphs in, in, in the, their papers. So you take two individuals, one gets a banana, one gets a cookie, or they both get a banana, they both get a cookie. In one individual, the cookie, no change in blood sugar, looks great. <laughs> But the banana causes this big blood sugar mm, spike. Mm. In the other, the exact opposite thing happens. So the first thing to, to point out at this point is that if you want to know how somebody will respond to a given food, you have to test them. And, you know, there are, you know, so those guys, they started a company called uh, Day 2 where they can try and predict which foods you will respond to based on a, a stool test. You know, maybe we'll end up there. Um, there's uh, Tim Spector in London and his Zoe group are doing something similar. They've done similar studies, you know, and they've said, you know, if you're trying to predict how somebody will respond to a, a given meal in terms of a blood sugar response, things that matter include obviously the meal itself. Uh, genetics, um, the timing of the food, you know, which meal of the day it is, um, how do they sleep, um, have they exercised recently, you know, all this, you know, how, what's their general health, what's their normal blood sugar regulation if you measured their HbA1c or other things. So all of these things play into that. Um, and so to say, you know, this person is eating a lot of sugar, but they're, you know, they seem to be great 
for them, you know, it may not be causing any issues um, in terms of, a, say, from a pure blood sugar regulation standpoint. It's perfectly possible. Um, so that's the first answer to your question is that any given individual, I can't tell you do or don't eat this food because it's bad for your blood sugar. Because honestly, I have no idea. So the, let me pause you right there before you get to the, the payoff on this. I, I, I love this. I, by the way, all the, the measures, the markers that you've been describing, I've done most of them. And I would encourage most people, I would encourage everybody to have some understanding of glucose monitoring, have some understanding of some of the, uh, the in, your insulin profile, you know, so your glucose profile. So you, you can understand like, how does your body metabolize and work with um, choices that you're making? So, and it, they're not that complicated. Like I think Boston Heart has a really good panel. Um, I'm not sure which panels um, for, that are uh, commercial grade that you're using, but Boston Heart was one that I used that was, it was awesome. And so, and, and listen, I'm speaking now right to the audience. Anyone that would like some recommendations or referrals, let me know. I'm happy to share those resources um, with you. Um, we can put them in the show notes or whatever. But do you have any go-tos that you have found to be useful? Uh, in terms of panels or panels like first. individual yeah. tests? Um, yeah. So I've used a wide, um, a wide range. At one point, uh, I had a lot of people doing true health diagnostics. Well, that still existed. It doesn't now. Uh, Boston Heart um, is obviously very popular. Most mm -hmm. of the tests that I would generally recommend, you can get from Quest or LabCorp. You might be able to get them through your uh, healthcare provider and get them reimbursed through insurance. Because you know, if you're talking about basic blood sugar tests, maybe you know, maybe yep. fasting insulin, HbA1c, all of these things, you can get pretty much anywhere, or they're even super cheap uh, direct to direct to consumer. So, I mean, if you really want to delve deep into your, you know, different uh, you know, into an advanced lipid test, then yes, you know, you, know, you could do like some of the Boston Heart things. But you know, for for a, for an overall quick look, you know, usually the basics will do a good job. Okay, let's go back to um, let's go back to your payoff here of, of the story. I think there is obviously some neurological basis to you know craving or desire for foods, right? And some of it is going to be energy supply the majority i think of cravings that we have for food in general are more socially or environmentally driven right it's not that you're at a point where your brain is so desperate for nutrients that you know you're, it's driving your your craving for sugar because the, the majority of us are you know privileged uh enough to not have to to deal with that in the setting of something like an acute brain injury, obviously, there is going to be some kind of increased energy demand, particularly in the recovery phase. Uh, depending on you know the type of injury, there's usually some kind of um, sort of change of a time in terms of what is demanded, you know, versus what's like increased energy demand, say for rep for repair versus ability to produce energy. So in some of the, the brain injuries that I study, particularly like there's acute, um, significant vascular type brain injury. So it could be a stroke um, or you know a cardiac arrest or something like that. There's this dip or in mitochondrial function, you know, early on in the injury that potentially recovers later on. So there's this kind of, there's a continuous, again, changing supply and demand. But as you recover you will 
have increased energy requirements in, in order to institute some kind of repair. So that could drive certain cravings. Um, in particular, concussion, well, actually any acute brain injury. We can see, again, from animal models, as well as as much as possible from the human data, if you have persistently or swinging high blood sugar levels, that seems to be associated with a worse outcome. So uh, a good example being that if you have type 2 diabetes and you have some kind of acute brain injury, you probably are going to have higher blood sugar levels and you may have a worse outcome than somebody who didn't have type 2 diabetes but is otherwise similar, has a similar injury. Same with a concussion. Um, so even if there are cravings for glucose, ensuring stable blood sugar levels is an important aspect of concussion or brain injury recovery which is where you know nowadays um and the randomized clinical trials are being done currently but nowadays i might might talk about other alternative fuels that you could use in that setting that don't cause high blood sugar spikes like lactate or ketones which seem to support um the metabolic requirements of the brain without you know causing any issues with blood sugar so it, is that achieved by reducing sugar intake, um, a car carbohydrate and or sugar intake completely? I don't think it needs to. Obviously, okay. you can institute ketosis by going on a low-carb ketogenic diet so you can produce mm -hmm. the ketones your yourself. Um, I think what's more important is just maintaining stable, normal blood sugar levels, you know, 80 to 100 milligrams per deciliter of fasting and then after a meal spikes no more than 120 130 how you achieve that i don't think we really know what's best but again if you were to measure your your glucose and how you respond to foods you can maybe tailor that appropriately uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean you have to eliminate carbohydrates but maybe focus on those that don't cause large swings in the setting of an acute injury it's uh true in brain injury um broken bones and you have some kind of inflammatory response different parts of the body become insulin resistant so you are more likely to get elevated blood sugar or large swings in blood sugar so again it's just something that you need to to keep an eye on um, hmm. and the, i see you raise your eyebrows one of the reasons for that is that you are diverting so tissue some of the peripheral tissues become insulin resistant in order to divert glucose to the immune system as part of the um, immune response so you get higher blood sugar levels so more blood sugar is available to those immune cells to do their job that's a, yeah that's that is amazing okay very cool all right so if we make this super applied super behavioral for just a moment um what i'm hearing you say is listen on the nutritional side here just keep it pretty steady right like yeah. anytime you're gonna have a swing which could be a banana or a cookie you need to you need to measure it yourself. This is why those constant uh, consistent glucose monitors. Am I saying it right? Continuous uh, glucose monitors. Continuous, yeah. Thank you. Continuous glucose monitors are really something of interest, so that you can learn about your individual responses to to food choices. One thing that I'm really, I guess, concerned about in the biohacking community: continuous glucose monitors are part of this. Sleep monitors are part of this. Is this kind of pathologization of things that should bring us joy? being sleep and food. Um, so yes, wear a continuous glucose monitor, test it against things that you eat frequently. If there's something that you eat, you eat frequently that causes a big blood sugar spike, consider swapping it for something else. And I think that's as much as most people need to do. 
because then, then and then you're armed with that knowledge right so so maybe the thing that causes a big swing is ice cream but you know every once in a while you're like hey I'm going to enjoy this ice cream. I'm not going to worry about the blood sugar spike because worrying about that blood sugar spike is probably going to be more of an issue than the blood sugar spike itself. And there's even data uh, suggesting that your expectation of a blood sugar spike causes a bigger blood sugar spike, um, regardless of the meal that you ate. So this is uh, done uh, by Ellen Langer, who's uh, you've probably heard of, this amazing psychologist at Harvard. And she's done multiple studies looking at glucose control in diabetics. Yeah, and I, I, I've I've had some good conversations with her. She's done some really interesting work around just yeah, expectations and exactly. settings. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And so, in this one study, is one of the more recent studies. They took diabetics and then they ran. They sort of did a crossover study, so they got both conditions where uh, a low sugar milkshake and a high sugar milkshake, and you got to read the new the nutrition label you know understand how much blood sugar is coming in that's important for, for diabetics particularly if they have to give insulin right you need to know what's coming in and so in the high sugar condition obviously they got a bigger blood sugar spike than the low sugar condition the thing was this was the same milkshake both times so thinking that more sugar is coming in is going to cause a bigger spike which is which brings me back to people who have continuous blood sugar monitors all day every day for everything they eat you're going to get to a point where you're expecting a big spike because of the pizza you're about to eat, and then you're going to get a big spike because you're expecting one. So there's a lot that kind of comes into this. But yes, the things you regularly eat, understand how you respond to them, be armed with that knowledge, but don't then, you know, as soon as you quantify something, you know, there's interesting data. This. As soon as you quantify something, you start to lose the joy in it. You start to objectify it, and it's no longer a thing that can bring you joy in the same way. So have... The necessary knowledge, but don't then, you know, over complicate or over focus on it. Very cool. And then, um, super pragmatically here, like if somebody's going to have a cookie or an ice cream or something, would you recommend that they also balance some of that, save a little bit of room, if you will, for a handful of nuts or something that's got some, you know, I don't know, maybe it's um, some sort of protein? Um, <laughs> Ice cream and eggs <laughs> doesn't sound right to me, but <laughs> ice cream and, and, and you know, nuts sounds uh, actually doable. Like, would, do you recommend that for uh, stabilization? Uh, yeah, and as much as is practicable, uh, there are a number of studies on uh, meal order. So say if you have a meal that has three components, you have a protein component, a vegetable component, and a starch component. Eating your protein and vegetable first, followed by the starch, and that could be eating your eggs before you eat your ice cream, causes a smaller blood sugar spike. So, so yes, uh, in general, um, well, I, I often, just because it's not something that people always focus on and it's, it's easy to not eat enough of, if you focus on protein either around or before something that might cause a large spike. And again, I don't want you to become super obsessed with it because I think that defeats the point. But in general, you know, eating some of those things before something with a, with a higher glucose or carbohydrate component or something that might cause a blood sugar spike can then blunt the later response you know i think you'll just find it fun is that maybe it's a glimpse into my family too it's a best practice for us to eat protein before we're going to eat protein veg uh vegetables and then we'll eat the carbs and like the challenge is when you go to a restaurant and they bring the bread out first or, <laughs> yeah. or they bring a glass of wine out and you're like hmm you know i gotta wait do i really have to wait you know but um maybe a little um i don't know shrimp cocktail does the trick beforehand but yeah okay so um can we talk can we get back to um 
a bit of the mind-brain connection here for a minute. And I'm curious your take on how expectations are actually creating a physiological response that doesn't quite make sense to just the property alone. So the expectations that I might get sick, the expectation that this is going to be fun, the expectation that this is going to raise blood sugar levels. So can, can you maybe just speak to that a little bit and on how you're understanding that? It probably depends. It may depend a little bit on the individual context. Um, so if we talk about everything about the blood sugar, um, one, I actually discussed this study with Dave Rabin, who's a, a mutual friend of ours. So I, I think in that context, so say you're a diabetic, mm-hmm. an insulin dependent diabetic, the process of eating carbohydrates is in itself, it's an arduous one, right? It's something every day requires cognitive input. You need to decide how much insulin you need. You know, there's this whole process that most of us don't have to go through. So in, in this setting, in that study, there is some degree of potential physiologic stress associated with knowing that there's in this incoming carbohydrate, this glucose load that I need to deal with. So um, any kind of physiologic stress itself through the release of cortisol, um, uh, catecholamines, you know, adrenaline, increases blood sugar. So I think that one is potentially relatively easy to, to explain away. They didn't measure those things. So I can't tell you that's exactly what it is. But in mm. my mind, I can certainly, I can see people who have continuous glucose monitors get stressed about the food they're about to eat and how it's going to affect their blood sugar level. Like you, you can physically see it as they, you know, and often they document it on Instagram for some reason. Um, so there's, there's that aspect. Um, then there are more complex things. And, and again, I, I, I talk about this particularly because it's um, interesting to me from a genetic standpoint. When you tell people, so this is, um, I'll wind back a little bit. There was a study where they took individuals and they put them on a treadmill, the 30 minute treadmill test. How far can you run in 30 minutes? This is a great study. You know this study. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. you know what? I've had uh, almost 400 interviews, some three something. Uh-huh. Not one person has brought up the study yet. Great. I'm so yeah, glad. Yeah, this is very fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked for you to introduce it. This is a great study. <laughs> um, I think it was in uh, Nature Human Behavior, if I believe, yep. if I remember. Um, and yeah, so they you did a treadmill test and then they did, did, then they did a genetic test. And then they, t- they told people, you either have a good gene for endurance exercise or a bad gene for endurance exercise. And then they had them redo the test. Those who they told had a good gene did the same on average. Those who were told they had the bad gene did worse. Except for the fact that it wasn't true. They randomized people to be told whether they had the good gene or the bad gene, regardless of what gene they actually had. So this is when we talk about genetic risk, and when we talk about you know these tests that people are doing in terms of genetics, you have a risk for this. I worry that you are creating, you're like almost manifesting that in your mind, regardless of whether the gene is having a, an effect. What's super interesting, in that same study, they looked at a different gene, the FTO gene, which is the single SNP that in a westernized population is most associated with being overweight or, or risk of obesity, even though the effect is teeny tiny on average. Um, and then they gave people a test meal and they looked and then they measured their satiety and they looked at their physiologic response in terms of um, hormones that respond to a meal and are associated with satiety. And they did the same thing, said you either have the high risk gene or the low risk gene for FTO. And again, it was randomized. It wasn't actually true. 
And those people who were told they had the high-risk gene, it changed how their physiology responds to a meal, right? You can it's measure crazy. it in the hormones, right? It's not something you could explain away with some kind of like magical thinking, oh, they told they had a bad gene, so they just gave up, right? You can measure it in the hormones, which is incredible. Um, so there is this process whereby the mind can physically change physiologic responses in a way that can measure. And this is, this is part of that expectation. So I, I don't have a great answer for you, but we are seeing these amazing things in the literature that I just, I love to talk about. It's complicated. I mean, and this is where you and I have spent our life efforts trying to understand interaction between mind, brain, environment, choice, you know, um, it's just, it's remarkable that the way that we think can fundamentally change our neurochemistry, our um, neuroelectrical, our behavioral response we get, but it changes something at a structural level that is like, are you kidding me? So in, in the, the shorthand of this is placebo and nocebo. And, um, you know, placebo, if, if you think something's going to work, we find that, um, or that there's going to, a change will take place that, yeah, they're, they're, that, that alone can account for some of the change. Nocebo, which doesn't get enough credit um, or talked about even in literature uh, frequently enough, is that if you don't believe something is going to create change, sure enough, there's um, an output commensurate. So I think it's really fascinating that the way that we perceive and interpret and use our mind has a direct impact on our physiological condition. So you know, um, we're just getting started, I think, in this very specific lane about how to optimize thinking relative to one's health span. And so, yeah, the, the easy kind of horseshoe that we're going to toss out there is optimism. Yeah, it's good. There's good research, you know, um, positive thinking, if you will. It's a little overrated. It makes me, oh gosh, it makes me kind of gag a little bit just thinking, oh, just be positive. You'll be good. But there is something that's taking place on expectations and the way that we use our mind. I was going to ask you about, I mean, whether you read the work of Gabriel Ottigen on positive thinking. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. Like I, I just really, find it interesting because you mentioned, nice yeah, because when you, when you, when you mention positive thinking, I immediately think of her and how, if you always imagine yourself achieving something through positive thinking, you can almost trick your brain into thinking you've achieved it without actually ever having to put in the effort to do it. So it's just an interesting other side of that. Yeah, that so I always think about when people mention positive thinking. One of the one of the positions to consider when you're thinking about saying your goals out loud or doing mental imagery and or having a dream board or vision board or whatever is that um, there can be that uh, confusion to your brain where it's not sure if it's actually already happened so that there's a decrease in volitional effort. And I'm shorthanding um, a bunch of work here. I find it interesting, but I have also found that it's um, there's a better return when we are precise and clear about what it is that we're working toward. And so I've, I've found that as a interesting conversation, I love the work that she's introducing. And from an applied standpoint, I'm far more interested in people actually doing the alone work to get incredibly clear about what a future state um, or a condition that they're working toward is and could be and is beautiful and amazing and compelling, get clear with that and then 
don't live in a fantasy land. Like actually, you know, like <laughs> be really grounded on a day-to-day -day basis about what you're working towards. So anyways, um, that's a good conversation. We, we should probably um, get Gabrielle on. I think she's she's done some really good work. Okay, awesome. Sorry, I sidetracked you. Where, what, what were no, you gonna mention No, next? no, no. I, I want to get into, um, so I wanna go back up stream. You talked about supply, you talked about demand, and you talked about meta um, metabolism. Is that mm. correct? Those yeah. three? Yeah. Right, and you can either increase or decrease and some sort of uh, downhill effect will take place. And we're in the game of trying to increase those, right? Yeah. And I just wanna thin slice quickly is that there's a difference between acute stress and chronic stress. Mm. And chronic stress is the one that we're most concerned about from a, a um, debilitation, you know, uh, of resources. Acute stress is necessary and needed. Yeah. Right. And we, you're calling acute stress challenge. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, okay. so you might, um, yeah, I would call it in, in this context, um, I'd call it, I'd call it a challenge, but I mean, you, you could also call it an, an acute stressor, a hormetic stressor any of those would 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 apply okay and an acute stress also is not to be confused with um what you're talking like an alarm bell that goes off like a fire drill that goes off is an acute stress but it it activates the system in a very different way than a challenge and um i'm not going to parse those two things out right now but i like the sensitivity between uh challenge acute and and chronic okay there's also in between acute and chronic there's a phase of like midterm stress. Sub subacute might be the yeah uh, yeah something. Sub subacute like is what you're talking about, right? Okay, all right. Um, okay, so let let us let's get into uh, some of the application here uh, from a brain perspective. Is that I I want to do a great job in my life, and I think others in this community want to do a great job of taking this vast science that you've been fascinated with and saying, okay, how do we make it simple for me to live a quote unquote healthy life for as long as I possibly can? And then there was a bunch of research around telomeres a number of years ago. And I, I saw some controversy maybe a, two or three years ago that maybe long telomeres, and maybe you can coach us up on this, is not the thing. It's not a bit of the holy grail that we once thought. So can you explain telomeres? Can you explain that? And then can you also get into um, some very applied things that we can do to increase the quality of a healthy life? Telomeres were essentially were probably the first big way in which people thought we could measure the pace at which cells were aging. Um, and telomeres are essentially the caps on the ends of chromosomes, which hold the majority of your DNA. And every time a cell replicates um, or is damaged, those telomeres shorten. And once they are gone, essentially, or very short, you can no longer replicate or split that cell, replicate that DNA. That's particularly important for stem cells, of which we have pools for different organs and functions throughout the body. And eventually, you will exhaust those pools of stem cells they will become something called senescent. People may have may have heard of that, particularly in the longevity arena. It basically means they are no longer able to replicate. Um, and often, once pools of cells become senescent, they also become kind of chronic inflammatory. They kind of sit there and they're grumbly and not very, very happy. And they can create this sort of systemic and local 
sort of inflammatory condition, which is associated with this you know, process of aging. And so the, measuring telomeres became this big thing that was going to be part of telling you how old you are. The, the problem is that telomeres is, is, is mainly the way, that, the way that we measure them, not necessarily that they're not useful, but each different tissue and each different cell type has different lengths of telomeres and different rates at which telomeres shorten. So if I wanted to measure your telomeres and assess your rate of aging, I'd probably have to do it multiple times over time and I'd have to do it in multiple tissues. So I'd have to do like a liver biopsy and a muscle biopsy and maybe I'd do a brain biopsy if I wanted to know how fast your brain was aging. We can't, we can't because we're not going to do that, right? Because other telomeres that we can easily measure either from white blood cells in your blood or from usually we do a, a cheek swab, so just from epithelial tissue inside your mouth. Those aren't reflective of telomeres across your entire body. So that's kind of been the issue with telomeres is actually they're not that reflective of the aging process of the body as a whole. Um, another part of it is if you look at the white blood cells of, of the white blood cell telomeres, the number and proportion of different white blood cells that you have circulating in your blood at any given time changes all the time and different white blood cells types types of white blood cells have different lengths of telomeres and that is a massive confounder as well so there's just multiple reasons why telomeres aren't a useful thing to look at there have also been studies where uh, people have given uh, telomerase so, so, now, so for a while people took telomerase which is basically mm -hmm. an enzyme that sort of adds back the telomeres um and they don't seem to be particularly beneficial either and i think one of the most important things to think about in this longevity arena is what's sort of the output, what's the epiphenomenon, what's the thing that you measure versus what are the factors that are contributing to this process? So if you have, if you're exposed to a lot of things that cause your telomeres to shorten, just adding an enzyme that's just going to be continuously working to try and add on telomeres, it doesn't make any sense, right? You haven't removed the environmental factors that are stimulating the aging. Process. So that doesn't slow down the process? And I know in, there was a whole boom in the nutrition supplement industry around this. Yes. So I think mm. TA65 is, is the telomerase product that I believe is still on the market. Some people take it, some in high doses. It's very expensive. There is no evidence that it works in humans. I think it, it, it works in animals. But there are a million things you can do to it to to make a mouse live longer, um, okay. almost none of which have translated well um, to humans. Um, but and there are multiple processes that you know we could maybe dig into. But basically, you know, so another one may be cellular NAD. You may have heard of. There are lots of different supplements and processes you could do to replenish that because it does decline as you age. NAD um, plus, NAD plus as a yeah, so NAD plus being this the main sort of electron carrier throughout the cell, it moves energy throughout the cell essentially, mm -hmm. um, and it declines uh, with age. And yes, you can replace it, and there are supplements that do seem to improve levels of it in in humans as well as in animals. But I don't really want to focus on that. The more important thing in my mind is what are the processes that cause you to lose NAD in the first place? I get you, yep. Um, and so when you damage your DNA, uh, and that could be through, again, toxic exposures, we talked about heavy metals, it could be chronic inflammation um, caused by, I don't know, a, a, a dental problem or some kind of infection. Um, DNA or oxidative stress, DNA damage. 
Or anxiety. I just want to add yeah. that to the mix. Oh, yeah. Any kind of physiologic stress that is chronic mm -hmm. can, can do that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, through stimulating those same pathways. Um, and so when you damage your DNA, the process of repairing it uses up NAD. Um, and you can, and also at the same time, chronic inflammation, chronic stress blocks the pathway through which NAD is regenerated. Um, and finally, you regenerate NAD at least partially by activating enzymes that are on a circadian schedule that requires adequate sleep. So where a lot of people are focusing on the supplement that replaces NAD, I myself would be interested in, well, what's the process that's causing you to use it up, not produce it, not recycle it adequately? And that includes anything that, you know, chronic psychological stress, inadequate sleep, inadequate nutrition, all those things. That's where I'd focus first, personally. Okay. I, I love this. I feel like I could go on and on and on with you. And I, I wonder if you could just take us home on purpose and as it relates to the brain. And I'm thinking about kids. I'm thinking about folks our age. I'm thinking about, you know, folks that have retired as well. But can you talk about purpose from either an applied and or a scientific standpoint? When you look at the, I guess, the literature in that arena, um, and I know the psychologist in you, you know, if I use purpose and meaning interchangeably, they are not the same thing. But They're not. In general, if we think about things like that, where you are committed to or feel you're committed to something outside of yourself, some process, ideally that contributes in a greater way to society, other individuals, um, that seems to be like one of the best predictors of long-term health. Um, and even interestingly uh healthy aging so there's a there was a, a study that's kind of related where they asked people about their thoughts on aging and those who were you know sort of scared to age had this sort of negative thought process about the process of aging actually ended up with worse health mental and physical health outcomes than those who are like aging is something we all do i embrace it it's part of who i am as you know, right so just thinking about how you connect to all of these things, individuals and within yourself, has, has a big impact. And there are multiple different ways to, to think about this. Um, but in general, I think it comes back to this feeling of connection or demand, which is that humans require interaction with the physical environment and that's your movement singing music language and social connection um and so there are multiple ways that you can think about it there are multiple ways that you can apply it but our purpose if we have one um you know it could you know you can think about uh so if you think about it from a reproductive standpoint we're often told that you're just there to pass on your genes. And then after that, there's no evolutionary pressure on you as an individual and you will rapidly die off and you're essentially just a useless husk that's taking up space um, and it's just your genes that will continue in your children. But I don't feel that that's necessarily the case because as, you know, in the reproductive standpoint, as you get older, you have a purpose which is to support and look after 
your genetic line as it comes behind you. So there is some evolutionary drive to live um, a successful longer life so that you can so that you can assist backwards in that way. Um, and that, you know, for a lot of people, it traditionally was their purpose is you become, you know, the, the matriarch or the patriarch of the family and you look after your children and their children. And that is kind of one very, you know, easy to imagine example of this purpose that you're contributing to. And it has some kind of, you know, evolutionary aspect as well. But it obviously doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be that. Um, you know, people may get that through church or CrossFit or volunteering. Um, you know, there are all these things that seem that I think have the same benefit because they are the same connection to society and something more than just looking after yourself. Um, so that's how I think about, I think, I think that's how I think about purpose. Um, and when you look at the research on purpose, it seems to be protective of a whole host of things. And I think, you know, I, you can boil it down to that. You are telling your body, your brain that it is useful, that it is required, that it is meaningful, you know, and that has a distinct physiologic effect that you could measure if you wanted to. I love it. That last line is really powerful because it relates back to what we're talking about for um, blood sugar levels, even sickness, you know, like if you expect something or you have a standard that this is happening and this is important, that it's sending a whole host of signals that we're not sure exactly how it's working. But um, what I love about this, this idea is that purpose is 100% under your control. And so as one of the great predictors of quality of life, and this is something that you can completely, you don't need to go outside of yourself to determine your own purpose in life. And the three components, it's bigger than you, it matters to you, and it's, um, it's got some distance between when it can be experienced now and in, in the future. So it's future oriented. So um, very cool. And then, uh, you know, I, I just would love a little summary of if, if, I, if I knew what you knew, if we knew what you knew, what would be some of the best practices on, on a regular basis that maybe you just kind of consider like to be, I don't know, uninteresting? But what are some best practices that you employ? And it can be anything from supplementation to the way that you wake up, the way you go to sleep, the way you prepare for meals, whatever. Like, what are some best practices from um, just a good old quality of life standpoint? <laughs> I think it, it's funny because, I mean, my answer is, is not very sexy. Um, and I, I think my answer is also going to be what everybody knows already and my personal journey through all of this has gone from you know optimization measuring everything supplementing everything you know continuously trying to tweak every biochemical pathway which i have done in countless athletes who are trying to get that competitive edge and people with chronic disease who are trying to improve their health and I've become increasingly interested in, well, how can we just like distill that down into something that hopefully I wish everybody could apply. And I say that because the things that I do and the things that I would recommend require some aspect of privilege, time, money, resources, access um, to some degree, because there are individuals who have to work three jobs. So they're never going to get the time to sleep or maybe prepare the food or be able to afford the food that I feel every human should have the right to eat. Um, so that's always going to be an issue that I struggle with. Um, but 
best practices are a regular sleep and, and wake time as regular as possible but the same every day as much as is possible and again before i go into all of this the most important thing i think of all of this is not to worry when this doesn't happen because i i, I worry about that I worry about that worry more than the process of that happening, you know, once or twice um, or occasionally. So regular sleep and wake time. So that includes being exposed to bright light in the morning, darkness at night, real whole food, um, whether that's paleo, keto, Mediterranean, uh, whole food, plant-based. I think only you know what makes most sense for you. And then maybe you do some tracking along the way to, to figure out how you might optimize that that would be ideal um frequent movement and i don't think you need to go to the gym lift weights although i think well i do think everybody should but i don't think you have to um and so resistance training 30 minutes twice a week i think that's like the baseline that anybody can do walk at least 20 to 40 minutes a day between those two things that's probably the majority bang for your buck exercise cognitive function you know cardiovascular fitness if you build in some balance ideally that's it um and then you know all that social connection stuff that we talked that we talked about and again you can find it in in any place and through that you're probably going to get a lot of that cognitive stimulus that we talked about learning new skills uh, maybe teaching others um you you can build that um into it and, and frequently people do uh that's essentially it i think basically you're saying build the base yeah build the base and i right now I'm not 100% convinced that there's anything else the majority of people need to do. It's very cool. Super clean, super crisp. Um, I love that you can, you can go wide and deep, which is um, really fun for me. So I want to just say thank you for, I hope we didn't, I hope I didn't do a disservice to the brilliance of your understanding of the brain by staying horizontal um, too much, but um you know, I'm, absolutely not. Yeah, Tommy, I, I, I love this. So um, maybe a last takeaway on any concerns you have about COVID in the brain? Anything there that um, you're paying attention to? Yeah, uh, su super tricky, uh, to be honest. And there was there were so many potential things that could come out of this. Um, obviously, the, the, you know, the virus itself and how it may affect the brain, I think that is a component that we will see aspects of. Um, certainly, you know, athletes, high stress, both physical and, um, emotional or psychological, uh, individuals are probably those who are at the greater risk for long COVID, which obviously has a, a cognitive component. Uh, that's certainly what, what I've seen, like almost all the long COVID people that I know or have worked with are runners, like high volume runners. Um, and I think, and it's interesting now, before I don't want to go on too much of another tangent, but some of the changes that you see in the immune system in individuals who have metabolic disease, which is another risk factor, are you also see in overtraining in athletes, um, even though sort of from a metabolic health standpoint, they're completely, completely separate. Um, so that's one component. But I'm also, I think right at the beginning, uh, there was this really interesting resilience that the population showed everybody was worried that you know the social isolation was really going to affect people's mental health but there seemed to be this like you know the blitzkrieg mentality we're all in this together um and people were like connecting with it um family members even if it was over zoom like early on there was this nice response that i think created some resilience but we've lost that now so and now we're at a point where mental health is declining 
uh, seems like uh, infant development is being slowed. Uh, we're no longer able to apply social skills, social interaction. We're no longer able to communicate. Um, you know, I'm thinking, obviously, thinking, uh, speaking very broadly, but you know, in, be able to communicate with with others, you know, who have different opinion, opinions from ourselves, be it face to face or or online. So I'm I'm mainly worried at that aspect now, much less about the virus in the brain and more about how the response is is affecting social development. Mm. More interest in the social psychological as opposed yeah. to the biological. Um, yeah. So the long COVID stuff, let me just make sure I'm playing this back as you're seeing it with folks that have metabolic disease and or overtraining conditions like ultras and or maybe any athlete minded person who is in the overtraining syndrome, having more complications for long haul. Yeah, no. So the the metabolic syndrome seems to be a greater risk for acute you know, hospitalization and death okay. with COVID. Okay. The long COVID seems to be more in high high volume endurance athletes, at least from those that I've interacted with. Obviously, others have gotten long COVID too, but that's the group that I've interacted with. Um, but from a like physiologic or immunologic standpoint, some of the changes in blood cell marker and white cell function that you see um, you, uh, are similar in those two groups. Um, and it, that may be part of the, you know, in high volume in uh, endurance athletes, you can actually create this sort of physiologic metabolic stress, localized insulin resistance, that kind of stuff, which is similar to the other side, even though these people are ostensibly healthy. So in that kind of high volume endurance um, athlete group, uh, I think you're seeing some of those changes that are then predisposing them to long COVID. And is long COVID a thing? I don't know anyone that in my life that has it. And so I hear people talk about it, but I haven't, I haven't worked with a client and I haven't, I don't have anyone in my circles that have it. I do hear people that have had COVID maybe more than once and saying, Hey, I'm kind of got a fog, but that fog is maybe, um, it could be attributed to a lot of things. And then, so you're saying you're nodding, like, yes, it is a thing, dude. <laughs> right. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not, okay. I'm, I'm nodding that like to everything you're saying, just because I appreciate your, like the world that you exist in and that you just haven't interacted with people. We don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it. Which, yeah. which I, which I completely understand. I have met and worked with several people who, I have no reason to believe that it isn't a thing and everything lines up and makes mm -hmm. sense with them and their, their symptomatology and their previous risk factors. And like I said, they often, you know, the story is they're usually fairly lean, very high volume endurance exercises, probably chronically under eating a little bit um, in that sort of high volume exercise setting, get COVID, you know, test certainly test positive you know, have like the acute phase and then just never recover from a, like a fatigue and cognitive function standpoint. Um, and obviously lots of parallels in other post-viral syndromes, which are very common and, and do exist and can go into, you know, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. When we measure it, you know, some of the tests that you've done, they've, you know, some, they've, uh, like Bob, Bob Navio has done similar studies in patients with chronic fatigue. You see this sort of like, down regulation of the mitochondria, hypometabolic type picture. So there's some kind of turning down of the metabolic system as a result that's long-term that you need to sort of build back from. So from my experience, I do believe long COVID uh, is a thing and post-viral syndromes you know, in general. And are, how are you treating it? How are you helping folks sort it out? So there's a number of 
there's a number of uh, approaches that that people are, are taking uh there's sleep, actually a sleep <laughs> get your blood sugar pretty i'm standard. trying to not i'm trying to not give you the same answer because that's that's yeah. that's yes yeah, so that so in general these are overstressed mm -hmm. overworked overexercised individuals so all of that nutrient dense calories sleep rest and recovery that that obviously has, has a role um some people are getting interesting results particularly by focusing on na nad like we mentioned earlier so okay. uh protocols that include uh, uh niacin questin which prevents the breakdown of, of niacin some people have, have found some benefit um in in that arena there was actually a, a south african group that sort of first focused on that they, they published that as a hypothesis paper some people have found benefit from that um part of it uh, it's the same in sort of chronic fatigue type settings is essentially a graded return to activity and what is very common is that mm. on a good day you want to do a whole bunch because you haven't done very much and you overstress the system and you sort of set yourself back so doing just a little so again it's it's that very graded what's challenging on that day you should continue to do that and make it the same and slowly build it up um and it's frustrating for a lot of people because you're like i'm a runner i want to get back to the running that i was doing previously but actually it's better to do the same amount on days when you feel good and when you feel bad and, and slowly build back up and there's a theory and i won't say that i, I believe it's true or not but it's an interesting theory the, the central governor hypothesis which tim noakes has talked about which is basically the brain controls the physiologic output of the body um as a protective mechanism um and he's and in chronic so fatigue so so you don't overheat to, yes. to borrow analogy from a like an engine right the yeah yeah exactly it, it kicks on to say hey, hey hey slow down slow down and what the endurance folks understand is that um you gotta push right past that thing right? <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and so <laughs> ignore those signals and part of it is and this is uh you learn the same thing with like the traditional attritional approach in endurance exercise training, you, you know, one of the reasons why you do like these really lengthy sessions at threshold is to train your mind to know that you can do it. And threshold is that really difficult, hard to hard to function standpoint like it's a it's a just it's not undoable it's the mm. place where it's like really just hard on the treadmill or on a yeah. run but then you stay in that at tempo yeah. for an extended period of time it like never gets better up. but yeah it's painful it never gets better but you can keep doing it for 30 40 minutes if, an hour if yeah. you're if you can get your mind around staying in that boring uncomfortable yeah. oh i just love that apple pie right now you know right? <laughs> like it, it's yeah. just dealing with that thing right yeah, yeah. or just stopping is it's and so, so part of that training is that you're teaching your brain that you can do it. And I think teaching your that, mind or your brain, uh, mm. a bit of both. A bit of yes. Both. Mm -hmm. Um, I would agree. and so there's some, there's, I think there's some unconscious aspect, but there's obviously a conscious aspect as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think in the setting of chronic fatigue, post-viral syndromes, part of it, and it's not the case for everybody. Uh, so I don't want to generalize because each, each individual experiences it differently. But part of it is retraining your brain that it's okay to exert yourself um, in this way and taking the brakes off. But it, that's a, it's a slow process because it's, it's a self-protective mechanism that you need to sort of retrain over time. Yeah, same with concussion. Like the protocol to come back is super gradual. So the brain doesn't go, whoa, 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 whoa. We've been yeah. here before and uh, we're not going there again. 
Yeah. It's a retraction that's taking place. Okay. It's a little bit like a balloon. You've got to blow it up slowly mm. to get the real full expansion. Yeah. Um, okay. Brilliant. Dude, like I know we're way over time and um, I really appreciate it. I could go on and on. So maybe we'll just get a round two of all things fun and exciting, you know, uh-huh. in the brain, health, lifespan, health span standpoint. And then best place people can learn about and watch your thoughts and kind of be part of you, your, your world. Where do you want to drive them? Uh, probably the best place is Instagram. If people use that at Dr. Tommy Wood, uh, if I do podcasts, I'll post them on there. Uh, very, you know, randomly I'll have a thought about life and the world and they will result in a post or maybe it'll just be my stories where I'm smoking brisket, um, or pictures <laughs> of my dogs, but you'll get, you'll get all of that. If you go to Instagram, Tommy, you're a legend. All right, brother. Take care. Appreciate you, you. too. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.